0: Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds, KGRA Radio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have Nathaniel Gillis, Demonologist. Thank you for being on the show, Nathan. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm very excited also. So what
1: got you into demonology? That's a good question. I would say that I got into demonology when my family moved into a new house. I was about eight or nine years old and I had my first encounter with a full-bodied apparition. It was at the open house that my dad led me by the hand into what would be my room in the future. And he just kind of told me, he said, you know what, Nate, he said, take a look around, figure out where you want to put your stuff, your bed, your gaming system. And he said, meanwhile, I'm going to be out in the living room talking with the realtor. So I said, okay. So I, I did what any other kid would do. I went through the closet, saw how much room I had for all of my toys and stuff and my whatever I had. I don't even re- remember at this point. But you know, I, I just kind of got the layout and there was something that was drawing my attention to the bed. That was in the room, and I remember kneeling down, pulling the cover up, looking underneath the bed, and as soon as I did, I was faced with the apparition of a beautiful, beautiful, pale little girl. She had black hair, long black hair, and she had pushed herself all the way up against the wall, and so I'm staring at her, and I'm thinking in my mind, because you know I had no frame of reference for hauntology or demonic hauntings or anything of that nature. And so truthfully, I just thought that she uh, was actually maybe a child of the family in that, that, that actually owned the house, you know? So that was my very first experience with the phenomenon. And so later on in my life, after living through that, that haunting and that, that house, I just wanted to know what it was that I had experienced. And first of all, I wanted to know that I wasn't crazy. <laughs> so you know what I mean? And so, you know, I I that's what really drove me head on to this research. I mean, how old were you at this time? I was eight. Eight. going and, on nine.
0: And when you moved in the house, did you still have encounters with this entity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Once we had moved into the house, the phenomenon mutated in a very malevolent way. I uh, began with nightmares. The nightmares were always black and white, and uh, I would it was the same dream over and over again, but essentially I was floating into a park area, and there was a reserve where people would have family reunions and birthday parties, and there were two young men, boys, that were about maybe 16, 17 years old, and they were sitting with their backs to me on a picnic table. The guy on the left had a needle in his left arm. And again, I had no concept of what drug addiction was. That's what's crazy about this whole phenomenon. But uh, he was shooting something in his arm. Obviously, I think it was heroin. Uh, But the kid to the left of him, he was the one that noticed me. And I don't know if he saw or heard me or what, but he just kind of leaned over, turned, turned his head towards me, made eye contact pulled out a 357 Magnum, put it in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. And that was the dream, the nightmare, rather, that I would have for months. So, of course, I mean, beyond that, I, I witnessed a seven-foot-tall shadow figure that stared at me one night through my window. There would be a pervasive stench a rancid smell of rotting matter. It smelled like decomposition. And, I, I mean, there was just there's so many manifestations that I can go into, but the, uh-huh. the, the haunting was, it was profound and it was very meaningful to me.
0: Um, did you ever do any research on that house afterwards? Do you find out if you know if there was any connection between what you saw in your dream and
1: somebody that lived in that house? I did, but I didn't come up with anything. Now, about three years ago, I had went back to that actual house. I knocked on the door, no one was there. And But, but you know, I, I had kept a, a friendly relationship with some of the neighbors out there. So I got to talking to them and they told me that since my family had moved out of that house, that the landlords were not able to keep tenants for longer than three or four months at a time. And so, you know, if anybody knows hauntings and how they work, I mean, that's just classic haunting. So right. I, I had no doubt that that area, at least that house is haunted. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember one night seeing a wisp of smoke enter my room and, and just kind of pool up in the corner of my room, and it was like a black cloud. So, you know, I didn't know the context of it, still don't know that to this day, uh, but I do believe that it was someone who had committed suicide. That's just my personal opinion.
0: Interesting. Um, did, did this spirit torment you? While you live there did it ever you know touch you or throw things at you or scratch you
1: it wouldn 't but it would do everything but um, i mean the the just the the incredible amount of terror that would envelop me every night it was paralyzing it was so it was paralyzing in the sense that uh, it, when it would enter my room I, I usually I would hear it walk on the floor. we had wooden floors, and so the, the, this particular entity. It had to have been physical because, you know, why else would it would its weight displace the flooring so much that I could hear it creak? And so I would listen to it as it walked up to my room, and it would stop when it got to my door, and I would turn all my lights on. Uh, usually, I would pull my mattress and my blankets into my parents' room, and uh, and even then, I could still feel it lingering, but it wasn't. Until one night, I just, I had enough. I couldn't deal with it any longer. I, I had failed a couple of grades at school. Um, I, had, I had been staying up all night long. So what I would do is I would turn all my lights on and I would play video games or try to get my mind off of its presence all the way up until the sun came out. And don't ask me why. Uh, maybe this entity was nocturnal, but whenever the sun came out, I, I knew that it was no longer there. And so I would get about 40 minutes of sleep before I ran to, or you know drove back to school or whatever, and then I would pass out at school. So my my grades tanked, Um, but it just, it left an imprint on me that I guess I've carried into my field. Did anybody else in the household, did your parents experience it, or brothers and sisters? No sir, no sir, and I think that was its intention. I think it really wanted to play on my mind. But uh, later on, when we were leaving the house, actually moving to another house, my, my dad, we were loading the truck, and my dad kind of chuckles, and he says, "Sonny said, I never wanted to tell you this when we're actually living in the home, he said, but I have been in that place a few times, especially downstairs in the basement, where I felt like someone was watching me, and he said, I, I don't know what happened in the house, he said, but I know someone died a violent death. So they may have never experienced something like I have, but I, I'm pretty sure that they knew there was a, a manifest presence there.
0: Hmm. Um, h- how much research have you put into that house to, to find out if anybody, I mean, if somebody committed suicide or was murdered in the house, I'm sure it would have to be documented.
1: I haven't found anything at all. And, and, and honestly, Part of that's probably because I've been more passionate about understanding what I experienced and then, you know, really trying to justify that, you know, something actually happened there. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe in the future I'll have it, especially when this COVID stuff breaks up, maybe I can go back there and actually do a real investigation. Yeah. You know, now that I'm older and more advanced in my knowledge and experiences, now it won't victimize me again.
0: (laughs) Or it could be an unsolved murder. Right. Exactly. That, and that would explain why it's not documented. And also might explain why the spirit was upset and reaching out.
1: Exactly right. And and how some and, and that's a fascinating point you just made because if I experienced anything, um, I experienced a form of communication that I think many researchers misinterpret. Most people who would have done an investigation in that house would have said, okay, we're dealing with horns and hooves, it's a fallen angel you know, it's a demon through and through. And yet it never physically harmed me ever. It never touched me. It never, you know, I would hear conversations above my head, but it wasn't as threatening as some of the other houses that I've been in. Um, you know, it was malevolent, no, no doubt. But that just goes back into why, why I'm here and why I'm studying this, this, this field of, of demonology.
0: And in the field of demonology, like, um, how do you even begin to research it? Like, where do you go to find information on demons? Well,
1: I grew up through what's called a Christian tradition. And so I, I sat at the feet of a lot of theologians growing up. And so I, I, I had a pretty good grasp on the classical interpretation of demonology, which is that they're fallen angels or that they are the offspring Of fallen angels mating with mortals and so what really set me apart in my my discipline is that uh, when I got down to the data sample right not just the legend and lore not just what the Bible says they are or what I was told the Bible says they are uh, these entities at least in my understanding and my approach to it were formerly human beings and so what, what I began to do is I said, okay, you know, I, I have what the legends say they are. You know, I can go back into Mesopotamia, Sumer, go into Phoenician manuscripts. I can go into Genesis 6, which is the Nephilim and the Rephaim, and I can actually get descriptions of them from ancient people, you know, and descriptions. They weren't definitions. They were descriptions of what they were experiencing. And so one of the first things I delved into was what, what, I, what are called the personifications of diseases and famine. And So you go into Psalms 91 and you see that these people, as ancient as they were, they were very intelligent, but they were experiencers. And so they were doing their very best to communicate to the future what it was they were experiencing in their present. And uh, what I found was a lot of these quote-unquote entities did not exist. There was no demon of famine. There was no demon of plague. What, What happened was is that they thought that this action, that whatever event is occurring around them had an origin. And that origin wasn't just an origin, but it had a will. And then that will, this is interesting, that will turned into an agency. So it's not just an event; it's, some, it's an event that someone will to happen. Does it make sense?
0: It does. Um, how about like um, Salminic type of demons, like the Yes. Those, again, those
1: are those are legends, um, and these grim wires are are rewritten, retranslated, reevaluated even through centuries. And so what I can say is, and to summarize everything, is, is this, that there is a life form uh, that is communicating with humanity. We have encountered it. The only way we can comprehend and understand it is to give it normal terms. And so what we began to do is we called them devils and demons and their horns and hooves and they're somewhat semi-divine, but we, we didn't know how you know so it's the the, what happened was is that our tongue was cleaving to the roofs of our mouths and so demonology the discipline of it was our understanding and how we're trying to explain what we're experiencing
0: Hmm. (laughs) um so do uh, all demons like do you believe in the concept of heaven and hell and that that demons are an agent of hell
1: I, okay, I do believe that fallen angels exist. I believe that they are a tool that Yahweh, or the God of the Bible, uses. That's, that's why one of his uh, the main demons in the, in the uh, Jewish demonology is uh, Samael, which is, is is just literally the left hand of God. And so to answer that question specifically, I do believe in heaven. I do believe in a form of hell. Uh, but I do not believe that the possessing entities nor the entities that we're at war with in life are, in fact, fallen angels. So they exist. But primarily, the entities that we're encountering, according to my research, uh, are formerly human beings who were embodied. And there are two kinds of them, at least in the two kinds of evil entities,
2: mm-hmm. not,
1: just, not just regular disincarnate people. But the first entity that we encounter that possesses people, 99% of the time, it's a man possessing a woman. Why? Because there's always a sexual aspect to this. Number two, the second malevolent entity that possesses people, it's not just someone who has a, a, their own worldview or their own belief system that they inherited from their lifetime. These particular entities are infinitely more intelligent than the rest. They're ritualistic. They have, the seri- they have the pathology and victimology of serial killers. These particular entities, which I have come to call the molters, they do not possess people just out in the middle of a crowd. They're not transient and they're not repeat offenders they're not just possessing strangers they're they're literally creating a new body for themselves and so those two separate entities are primarily what we encounter in possession cases and in hauntings they're not the same right and uh, we'll get into those more and it's a fascinating discovery
0: is there a reason why like when they do an exorcism that things they react to things like crosses and holy water
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And it's not universal. Um, matter of fact, in demonology, we have cases of what are called the Dibbix, or the correct Hebrew rendering would be the dibuk. Uh The Debuk is, is just another demon, but it's a specific demon that, that originated at least the phenomenon in the 16th century. And it, was, it wasn't horns and hooves. It was simply a person that died and possessed someone. And so what, what we actually found out, let me, let me dig into this real quick to answer your question. What we actually found out in the 16th century, they called it the age of the demoniac. And the two primary exorcists within a province in Israel called Safdi, one was Isaac Lurie, the other one was Ahime Batao. And both of them came to realize that, that they were dealing with people who had their own belief systems They had their own fears and their own own faiths. And so whereas in the Western uh, sphere, we would think, okay, all all demons believe the same thing and they're all Catholic and they all believe in Latin. That's not the truth. The data sample speaks of entities who, uh, even though you would have a cross on holy water, if they did not believe in that particular God in their lifetime, they would not respond to your advances. So, so like like we have cases especially in Baghdad, where uh, because the line of religion was so thin between Islamiyah and Judaism in terms of uh, your inhabitants right and your geography, you would have Arab Jews and you would have you know Arab people that were following Judaism and Arabs who were following Islamiyah. so it, we have cases in that that particular cradle of the world where a rabbi would go and find a jewish man possessed and he would come out and try to do the jewish rite of exorcism and that possessing entity would not respond and so he would have to go over to the neighboring town and say hey listen do you have an imam who can perform an exorcism and so the imam would come over and uh, you know kind of discuss things and really i don't know ask these entities questions come to find out the possessing entity was muslim and so all that person had to do was quote the Hadith and do his exorcistic right, and entity left. So, yeah, the, these entities have their own belief systems in terms of the, the, the lowercase possessing malevolent entity.
0: Uh, is, it, is it true, like, um, you know, before we had these established religions, um, when a entity was, when somebody was suspected to be possessed by an entity, Um, one of the ways they would um, banish the entity was to make them believe that
1: the body
0: was going to be killed
1: that was a threat and that was a fleeting moment in history what that was were exorcists who were still growing into their gift and figuring out what these entities feared and it wasn't I mean there were there were cases where they were demoniacs who were actually beaten half to death because of people, you know, who would try to employ that. Right. So thankfully our, our exorcistic rituals and modernity have advanced since then. Cause if not, there would be a lot of, uh, a lot of cases of uh, beatings. <laughs> Thank God it's not the same.
0: So, so ha- um, once, ha- have you encountered any um, like possessions and seen exorcisms
1: performed? I have, but I, I have it in a sense of like the Catholic uh, right. Now, let me say this. The the exorcisms that I witnessed, I witnessed in the Christian tradition I grew up in, and I grew up in what was called Pentecostalism. And it wasn't, you know, like a lot of the sham preachers we see on TV who drive, you know, 60, $65 million airplanes and stuff like that. That's not the cats that I that I hung around with. I mean, these guys are... Some of them were from, from Africa, you know, and they would actually go out and fast for months at a time. And so they were very dedicated people. And so whatever, whenever I would witness an exorcism it wasn't throwing holy water, it would usually be around an altar service where they would just walk by people and I would watch them where like people would just, they would be fine, until this specific minister would walk by. And next thing I would know, their entire visage, their face would, their face would change, would contort. And they would just begin to scream and, and try to claw at the minister and everything. And so uh, the more I experienced that, the more I wanted to be used in that kind of ministry. And so that's why at the age of 15, I began to preach all around the country And that's when I began to do uh, my own exorcisms in terms of uh, our tradition was laying on the hands, um, quoting scriptures in the ear of the demoniac. And yeah, I mean, you know, to answer your question, I didn't throw holy water, but I I did witness my share of profound manifestations. Interesting. Um, In the
0: Pentecostal religion, Mm -hmm. um, they're known for like speaking in tongues and, um, and also handling rattlesnakes, don't they?
1: Well, there's, there's a, a strand of, uh, I want to say this, illiteracy that, that originated a long time ago where people read one scripture and said, you should tread on serpent's heads and, you know, you shall be bitten by snakes and you will not die. People thought that was supposed to be on purpose, <laughs> right? <laughs> so they thought, I'm going to go get a snake. And that's what they thought that uh, God would do for them. And they've died. of people have died, you know, because it's not supposed to happen on purpose. It's supposed to be, okay, if you're ever in that position and something attacks you, no, it's a very dogmatic nuance, but it's not scriptural. Some people believe that, but not the most sophisticated of the theologians. And I hate to say it like that, but that's very true.
0: It's it's something I've always wanted to actually see. (laughs) You know, if I I, I were going to go to a church service, I would want to go to one where they're dancing with snakes,
1: Oh my goodness. I saw one video and I'm not trying to demean them. I know it sounds like it, but it's a good question. I've never really been asked that before, but I mean, we've had, I've never met them. They've never been in any organization I've ever been a part of. I've never even heard of anybody knowing them, Uh, but I've seen documentaries where it's like, you know, my grandfather died of snake poison. My dad died of it. I you know, my son died of it, but I still believe in this, you know, it's like, no, I mean, (laughs) If everybody's dying around you and you're saying it's scriptural that they're not supposed to die, I think that uh, it needs a little bit more investigation. <laughs>
0: Interesting. See, I always assumed that situation that if the person died, it's because um, they probably, I think, because I believe the the quote from the Bible is, "If you are free from sin and you're bitten by yeah. a serpent, you won't yeah, they, you won't yeah. die." But if you have sinned, if you've done something wrong, then you're going to die from it.
1: Yeah, and it's he that he that is without sin cast the first stone. There's a reason Jesus said that because nobody's without sin. So if that's their theology, you know, it's I wouldn't do it. I'd be I'd be too afraid to. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> I'm just like, wait a minute. Listen, I'm not Jesus here, so I'm probably going to die.
0: Um. So. When it comes to the paranormal, mm-hmm. do you believe that in like a multi-dimensional universe or a holographic universe? Like, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, if if we're not able to see them with our five, and experience them with our five senses all the time, they mm-hmm. have to exist in some other form.
1: It has to, and I'm I'm after that same answer myself. I mean, let's just take a look at what demons or how demons rather were seen to manifest in antiquity. They, they would materialize in front of people out of nowhere. Uh, there are some theologians that would say that they were using water particles in solidifying them into what's called the coagulation of water and then using the solidification of the water to step into. And then you would see the form But as far as I can track these entities, I have tracked them all the way to what it's called the, the Katamua inscription that, that predate, I mean, it's, it's carbon dated all the way back to the late iron age. So that's right around when Noah existed. But these entities that wanted to possess people first wanted to possess things. And in the Katamua inscription, Uh, It was located in Turkey in 2008 by archaeologists from the University of Chicago. But Katamua says, he tells tells it in his uh, inscription, he says, okay, he says, what you have discovered is my sarcophagus. He said, before I died, I hired an artificer of metal, someone who would make my sarcophagus in the image of me and he says for the purpose that, that when I die, my soul can inhabit the sarcophagus. And then he makes an interesting demand. He says, So whoever discovers me, my soul, in this sarcophagus, he said, I want you to bring offerings and ovulations to me. He gives them specific account of what he wants. So we have to understand, especially possession it was never uh, designed or even believed to be fallen angels. It was always afterlife phenomenon. And so after Katamua wanted to possess Metul, these entities mutated. Their pathology and victimology mutated. They could no longer, no longer wanted to possess their own sarcophagi. Now they wanted to possess people. And now we go into the Old Testament where Laban, a biblical character, he was worshiping and and actually carving and molding idols. These idols were not molded just so that they could be worshiped, but they were worshiped and molded with the intention of what's called an unclean spirit possessing them, just like Kadamua did. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of this. So Laban goes out and he creates what are called teraphim. Teraphim, according to even just in Western scholarship, I, I always thought it was just figurines or just, you know, weird godlike shapes that you could hold in the palm of your hand. It's not true. This was necromancy. He would go out, he would take a firstborn boy, specifically between the ages of, I think it was six and 14, He would kill him. He would take his head, take his tongue, take a metal bar and carve the name of an unclean spirit on metal, place it underneath the tongue of that that victim, and then instantly that possessing entity would be drawn to the metal and begin to speak through that young person. That's where possession began.
0: So, so they were already yeah. so it was possessing somebody that Body. was already
1: deceased. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So these entities have mutated in their victimology and pathology. And that's why I feel that it's incumbent upon me to, to bring demonology where it should be. Because if we lose them in one mutation, just like a disease it's going to be far more difficult for us to understand what they're after and what it is that they're doing. And what is it that they're after and doing? These are disincarnate entities who, for some reason, do not want to exist in the dimension of the afterlife. They want a body that looks like them. It's just like Katamua. Give me a sarcophagus that looks like me. Well, that's not good enough. So what did they do? They mutate it. They mutated and began to possess deceased people. Um, now, be, even before Laban, let's go back to the late Iron Age and, and the, you know, the story of Noah. Are you familiar with the legend of Genesis 6? I am not. Okay. In Genesis 6, Genesis being the first book of the Bible, in Genesis 6, it says the sons of God, what some believe are angels or were angels, it says that they fell and that they mated with human women. This is what some people would call the the origin of demons. But the story says that they, they, they had intercourse with human women, specifically wives, and that through their union, a gigantic race of what are called Nephilim were born into the world. And not in addition to that, let me say this. In addition to that, the teaching is that when those giants is what they were, the offspring, when those giants died, that their spirits stayed on earth. And those, according to some theologians, those entities are who possess people. So it's like the children of fallen angels. That was the theory, right? That was the theory. Um, But one thing that I I could never understand is that how how could a a fallen angel procreate? Number one, the Bible says that they found our women to be beautiful. Well, according to biology, you know, the, the understanding of beauty and the attraction of, you know, sexuality, according to biology, was always to propagate the species, at least in some theories. But... How does a fallen angel do that? Right? And I mean, you know, these entities possessed wives. They took wives. So they were attracted to women, and then they had the male appendage to actually have intercourse. How does an angel do that? Right? I see your point. Does it make any sense to me? In addition to that, all of the accounts, there there are many different, accounts many different books that are all talking about the same event but none of them agree with each other matter of fact there's some books that that blame it on the women and say you know what the women were too good looking
0: (laughs) so how about like an ancient alien type of theory where there were just aliens meeting with humans
1: okay so in the fertile crescent mesopotamia sumer Um, ancient Palestine, Israel, we have what I call a convergence of legends. And in order to understand not just the story, but what they're really referring to, we have to go into what's called comparative etymology. Okay? This is going to get deep. Mm -hmm. I'm ready. So, you have the Anunnaki, you have the Rephaim, and those two Two uh, groups of entities were the dominating legends throughout the Levant. So the Anunnaki were not divine because they were gods. They were divine because they were ancestors who were what are called divinized at their death. (laughs) Just like the word Rephaim, which is in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the word Rephaim comes from the ugaritic We have Ugaritic texts where there's, there's what's called Repiumai. And the Repiumai were supposed to be, like I said, they're, okay, they're fallen angels, but they weren't. They were semi-divine, not because they were divine and then they fell, but because they were deceased ancestors, which is what the word Rephaim has always meant. And so in order to understand what the old Testament teaches about demonology, we have to understand what the Anunnaki were, what the name means and what their pictorial traditions were. Okay. So, The Rephaim and the Anunnaki are both mentioned in the Old Testament, but they're always mentioned in the context of deceased ancestors who are embodied again. Now, remember how I told you that these entities are wanting to create a body for themselves? Yes. And it it has to look like them and has to act like them. Mm -hmm. So I found a manuscript It it dates all the way back to it's between the 2nd and 4th centuries. It's a Coptic manuscript preserved by ancient Egyptian monks. It's called the Apocryphon of John. And in it, it says that these entities in Genesis 6 that they first appear to our women in the form of their husbands. So they didn't take wives, right? They, they appear to other people's wives or other men's wives as though they were their husbands. So what we have here is a woman who's literally laying down at night, and she sees the apparition of her husband come through the door. She thinks it's her husband. This gets chilling. Uh-huh. And before before long, you'll see that these entities are incubus. This is exactly what an incubus does. And so that entity, which was not her husband, had coerced these wives into intercourse. And at the moment of conception, wink, wink, it stared into their eyes and instantly reversed their appearance back to what they truly look like. That's what the apocryphon of John says. Now, it sounds very similar to some of the stories that are in Greek mythology. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that, and it's it's everywhere. It's prevalent. It's everywhere. We just didn't understand number one what they were doing and why they were doing it. But the idea of staring into the face of the woman at the moment of conception. It comes from an ancient, what's called obstetric tradition. Abstractic is just a reference to gynecology and to um, fertility. They believed that whatever the woman's eyes were focused on at the moment of conception, she will then recreate the material image of in her womb as a child. So that will give the entity a body and a whole new yes, life sir. as a child. Yes, sir. I'm telling you, this is dark. It's sinister. So that's why when we go again to Genesis 6 and they use the word Nephilim, we have to understand that at the time that book was written, there were no vowels in the Hebrew language. So what we are left with is a word that is the same Hebrew word for either for one of two things. You ready for this? This is crazy. Yes, I'm ready for abortion or miscarriage.
2: <laughs> hmm.
1: So does that mean these are dead babies? That's what they were doing. Now, then the, this, this text goes further, and this is why I'm saying that we're dealing with not just afterlife phenomenon, not just entities who are wanting to exist again in this dimension, but we're dealing with necromancers. In, in, in the of John, says, it says that in, from the darkness they begot children whose likeness was their image. And then it goes a step further, and it says that they created copies of the same body. So again, this, this whole, the whole field of demonology has been focused on transient possession throwing holy water at entities that are truthfully, they're not as malicious and intelligent as these others. These others are on a whole different level. Okay? Yes. So, so these other entities, they're mixing. So what they did, when, the, when that passage says that they, they took from the darkness a spirit, that's a reference to shadow people, specifically what was called a shade or a shadow soul. What they did is that, you're exactly right, they took that tradition, they created what is called in in possession, social skins for them to possess, not one, not two, but copies of bodies. With that said, now, is it possible we can see the phenomenon of an incubus through a different lens, right? It right. makes much more sense now because we know what they're after.
0: So, so people that we encounter in everyday life could possibly be these demons?
1: Yes, sir. Absolutely. And, and I've told everybody that in every interview I've done this year. We're, we're used to men looking like monsters. We've not yet understood that monsters can look like men.
0: How can we tell the difference?
1: Belief system. Most of the time, these will be sleepers. In other words, when you look at them, you'll see a human body, but in, in, inside of them, dormant, there will be an intelligence that is formerly human, that when it died, it was changed. I, okay. It was changed. And so you're going, to, you're going to encounter something that when it manifests, it's going to be highly intelligent. Its victimology would be murderous, if not carnivorous. Um, Its pathology would be serial killer-like. So it can kill with impunity. It's a predator. And it will slip in and out of homes uh, and people at will. And I'm not trying to, you know, paint this as God. I'm saying that these entities are ancient, if not in belief system, then at least in being.
0: Do you think, like, a lot of serial killers are the result of this?
1: (sighs) Okay. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. I make the serial killer reference because of the way they choose their victims.
0: Yes, but the serial killer also sounds like it has the same...
1: It does. It does. For um, For instance, Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer's last victim, the only one that survived... Jeffrey Dahmer tried to uh, not really poison him and get him intoxicated with liquor. Thankfully, the gentleman didn't like liquor. He was a beer guy. And so he went into the restroom, tossed the liquor out, you know, acted like he drank it. He said, but I came out into the living room and I turned around and he said, I saw Jeffrey Dahmer on his couch watching the exorcist. And he said, but Jeffrey was swaying forward and backward. He was in a trance, and he was speaking in an unknown language. That's mark number one, right? Right. Second thing is this. There seems to be what I call memory in motion in at least some serial killers that does not belong to them. The reason I say that, Jeffrey Dahmer is known for crushing the bones of his victims, pulverizing them, cremating them going into his backyard and fanning them in a circular motion. That is a necromantic rite. However, how did he know that? Because he was a demon. There was something, there was something within him, correct? Um, not just that, but these entities that possess people are self-seeing. What do I mean by that? I'll tell you what. Fritz Kramer, (laughs) Fritz Kramer, the German anthropologist wrote a book. It's called the red Fez. And uh, in it, he was basically giving his accounts when he was in Haiti and the different experiences of possession he encountered there. But he said that he was led by a uh, guide to a a fire and a circle at night. And he said there was a man in the middle and the man was from Haiti he was, a, he was a person of color. He said, but his skin was scarred, so much so that the scar tissue, scarred flesh had turned white. And he said it was very difficult to even realize, you know, what, if he was a man or a woman. It was just, it was very interesting. And so he asked the, the guy two questions. He said, number one, why are we going to go see him? And number two, why is he so scarred? The guide looks at him and says, well, the, fir- to the, the answer to the first question is, we're not going to go see him. We're going to go be seen by him. Watch this. But we cannot, we cannot be seen by him unless we see him too. <laughs> Number two. You know, to the the answer, why is it that he's so scarred is because whenever that possessing entity, that ancestor possesses Mm -hmm. that man, he scars his flesh and molds him into another image.
2: Mm.
1: It's the same thing. It's the same phenomenon. They're still wanting the same thing. They're wanting a body that they can make into themselves, making their image. Now, there are some that are better at it. There are some that it feels like that they're learning, they're adjusting to a new world and they're taking people for test runs.
0: Interesting. Um, but what, what is their, their main objective? Is it just to, to procreate and possess or did they have another agenda?
1: There's another agenda present. Um, and and I, I'll tell you what, I, I, I discovered the real agenda by going on into the the old testament in in the book of ezekiel chapter 13 because because yahweh mentions these entities by name and they're they're the exact same creatures that we encountered in the old testament so remember how i told you that that they created giants yes okay so that's the that's the apparition that's the physical manifestation of what these entities look like so They grew into giants. Now, the Bible gives us certain references in order for us to understand who these entities are. For instance, when when the Amorites encountered these entities in the Old Testament, they called them Zemzumim. Zemzumim is not even a real name. It was just a word that they gave to these entities because the word Zimzumin sounded the most like the language they used to communicate to each other. Mm -hmm. It was a buzzing language. It was a chatter. It was a muttering language. Some people called it a chirping language. Now, why is that important? It's important because that tells us that, that some of these entities, they may speak to us in a language that they remember that we wouldn't understand, but the way they communicate with each other is in a different language. Okay. Okay. Second thing is that Zimzumim in the chirping, buzzing language is a direct reference. It's a scriptural reference to Isaiah eight and 19 where Yahweh prohibits the visitation with a necromancer. And guess what? He says, those who chirp and mutter. <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly what these uh-huh. entities do. And so they're necromancers. So in, Eze- in Ezekiel 13, we encounter these same entities. Yahweh calls them soul hunters. He says that you kill those who should live to keep those who should die alive. So they feed off of human souls? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, right. This gets, it's chilling, man. It's really, it's, it's far darker than any horror movie out there. Um, but he said they're soul hunters, and these entities would go into their victims' homes at nighttime. They would wait until people are asleep, and they would kill them. And then, and this gets back to the serial killer pathology, especially Ed Gein, they would take a piece of their flesh off their body and sew it onto their own. Matter of fact, the the way that they would sew it onto their own was mentioned in the Old Testament as an attachment. See, I, I laugh because in deli- being a deliverance minister, I've encountered people who have attachments, right? Uh huh. And we've known their attachments the whole time. We just didn't know how deep this went yet. But that, that's how they're creating what's called the second self or the social skin. I, I, can, I don't want to ramble, but I can go deeper with that.
0: Well, what does what
1: that mean? A second self? Second self and the social skin is what demonologists, at least your good ones, would call a demoniac. So these possessing entities, remember how I told you their pathology mutates? Yes. It's as if some people are still in the situation room of wanting to possess images. So we have dolls that are being possessed, like Annabelle. Then we have other entities who are on a different learning spectrum and they're, they, they're beyond that and now they're wanting to possess people and then there's the, this, this opiate the, the pinnacle in which these entities operate is soul hunting and soul hunting was literally they would take people's faces off their own body and put it over their head so that they would look human again
0: hmm so are these well, back so other but it still sounds like to me that their their agenda is self-sustainability.
1: Yes, sir. They do not want to die. And in Ezekiel in Ezekiel 13, Yahweh says that they would they would take skin and they would place it on the tallest among them. Here's why. This is this, like I said, they have an ancient belief system. They believe that the tallest among them is their priest and is the most gifted at soul hunting. Now let's ask ourselves why they would want to create a race of giants, right? Right. Because that's what they believe. I mean, it fits. It's, um, it's unbelievable how, how this fits each other. um,
0: are there regular humans um,
1: working with these demons? I think so. Now, the ones that are working with, with them without their permission are UFO abductees. The, the humans that are working with them with permission, with consent, were your witches in the 16th century. In the 12th century, let me say this, up to the 12th century, these entities were taking people against their will in only one form. This is not, this is crazy. In the form of incubus cases. So they would appear to women, take them without their will, impregnate them without their will in terms of what we would consider to be hauntings. Mm-hmm. In the 12th century, witchcraft began to take its deepest breaths, and it, that, that bled into the 16th century, where these entities began to appear to witches as, quote-unquote, devils. From that moment on, they were having intercourse with these witches, and these witches were having intercourse with them consensually. At that moment there, there became another mutation. And and the mutation was what's called metallurgy. Metallurgy. If you remember back when I said that Katamua wanted to possess metal.
0: Right. Put the head through the metal spike.
1: Yes. All of this. It's fascinating. Even even with Laban and the teraphim, what did he do? He carved, basically, consciousness onto a metal bar. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to laugh because this is funny. I'm mm-hmm. saying this is, we've got them, man. I mean, we've got, their, we've got their pathology nailed to the wall, finally. So now what we have is the molding and merging of consciousness and metal. Okay. From that moment on... We start to have UFO abduction phenomenon, which is something. It's the same thing, but they're doing in a different manifestation. Okay. Okay. So, so
0: so, so that's how they're they're instead of since they don't have any willing witches anymore, they just abduct people and impregnate
1: them that way. That's exactly what they're doing, and that's why 99% of your UFO abductions, at least with pregnancies, we have virgins who have um, afterbirth in their womb. How does that happen, right? It's, it, these are the same entities. I mean, for instance, let me say this. For instance, um, when we get into to the Ezekiel 13 narrative, it says that they would go into people's homes at nighttime. It's UFO abduction. 99% of their abductions are at night. Secondly, they would would find them when they were asleep and then they would pull. This is crazy. They would take pieces of skin off of them and then they would kill them. Now, do you remember when I talked to you guys about the apocryphon of John and when it says that they first appeared to women as their husbands? Mm -hmm. In the UFO abduction narrative specifically in Dr. Carter Turner's work and Bud Hopkins work. I mean, everywhere, but mainly Turner's. Dr. Carla Turner had a case with a man by the name of Ted Rice. He was an abductee. Ted Rice during hypnosis told Carla Turner, he said, listen, he said, when I was six years old, I was abducted with my grandmother. And he said, we were in the ship in a metallic room and an entity that was a hybrid right, right there. It's out of apocryphon of John, right? There was a mixture here. That's not, it's fascinating, but he said a hybrid approached my grandmother and tried to get her into intercourse. And my grandmother said that I I've only known one man and that is my husband and he's been dead for 11 years now. What would these entities in Genesis 6 do? They would change into her husband. Exactly right. And guess what? Instantaneously, the apparition of her deceased husband walks into the room. I got chills, man. This stuff creeps me out. And then what it did is it tried to look for consent within her. Because what, it, what was it going to do? It's exactly what they would have done in Genesis 6 and what they did. It would have gotten her into intercourse, the moment of conception, reversed its apparition, stared de- deeply into her eyes, taken her back home, placed her back in her bed, and then told her it was just a dream. Maybe six months later, this is this is factual, this has actually happened. Mm-hmm. Six months later, it would have come back, given her another quote-unquote dream, where it would have harvested that body from her, and she would have never known until she went and had a surgery or some health defect from their operation revealed itself. It's classic UFO abduction.
0: Yes, def-
1: absolutely. Absolutely. So watch this. So when the, when the apocryphonic John says it made copies of bodies, Dr. Carla Turner had also had an abductee who said that when she was abducted, she was not working with the aliens. The aliens looked at her and said, look over there into the corner. And she turned around and saw another her laying on a bench. And the creature told her, if you do not cooperate with us, we will kill you and will replace you with that body and your family will never know the difference. Copies of bodies.
0: So they can actually clone
1: somebody's body. Exactly use right. It. Exactly right. So they're not just looking at images of themselves, right? They have images of us too. <laughs> so getting back to the self-sustaining aspect to this, I knew enough about UFO abduction. I knew enough about my research and work in possession cases to, to, you know, I I just knew that these entities were not interested in what normal fallen angels would quote be interested in, you know, their, their, their value system was different. So here comes the self-sustaining aspect in, in Ezekiel 13, it says that, that all of this phenomenon, the possession, UFO abduction, um, even Lamishtu back in Mesopotamia, all of it, soul hunting, all of it was to create what is called an exterior soul. Okay. What is an Ex- exterior soul? An exterior soul can only be understood by understanding what a body is. See, everything that they've been wanting to create has been physical, Right. Yes. It's just like an idol. It's, an, it's, it's, an, it's a body without a spirit. Well, what's, what's a, what's a uh, cadaver? It's a, you know, it's a body without a spirit. What's a ghost? It's a spirit without a body. So they're not trying to, re, trying to create spirits. They are spirits. They're recreating bodies. And so in order to understand what we're looking at is this, and this is fascinating too. This, it's not that the soul looks like the body. It's that the body looks like the soul. <laughs> so what are, what's an exterior soul? It's exactly what we've been talking about the entire night. It's a body. That's all it is. It's the physical manifestation of the soul that is in it.
0: Um, one very, of the things yeah. that you mentioned that that, that pops up in my mind is, you know, when you talk about, like, them attaching skin to a body. Yes, sir. I, I can't help but not think about it's the skin exactly the skinwalker, right. a skinwalker exactly right. ranch.
2: You're exactly right.
0: It, it is, is it possible? Like, okay, like I understand these entities are, are so mm-hmm. far from what you're talking about, sort of like independently, mm-hmm. but do they have like, is there like a leader w- which could be like explained like this skinwalker in Utah?
1: I, as far as an hierarchy to it, I don't know yet, but I can, I can answer that question with this man. And this is what really is interesting to me is that the external soul is a reference to the Nephilim. It's a reference to ancient warriors, which is what these giants were. And my, my source and my reference, at least one of them is, um, it's, it's a book called The Golden Bow by James Frazier. James Frazier talks about the external soul, and, he's, and, and it's actually not just a thing. It's not just an object, but it was a tradition. The tradition is, it's very ancient, but the tr- tradition is that when these warriors were at, in battle, they were in battle, and when they knew they were going to die, they would dispossess their own body, place their soul into someone or something else in order to survive. See, we would call that possession, but Mm -hmm. we didn't know what it was yet. (laughs) Interesting. So we can have, okay, the pocket of John says you can have multiple bodies. So we can have... A dozen bodies, two dozen bodies? I don't know yet. We could have at least one, let's say five. We could have five of the same bodies possessed by one entity who has projected its consciousness into each and every one of them for what purpose so that when you kill them, you do not kill it. It exists. So what's their end game? If they're creating second bodies, if they're teaching their young, or at least people who've recently transitioned, if they're teaching them to do, to do this, then they can only be doing this for one reason, and that's that they're preparing for a war. So that a, when a, they, war,
0: a war against us, or I do a not war know.
1: against God. I do not know. What I do know is this, and this is something that theologians and scholars cannot explain. And I think that now that I can at least give some visibility and understanding to why this happened, but they can't explain how the Nephilim continued to exist even after God gave a flood.
0: That's one of the other questions I have is, why would God even allow this to happen?
1: i that that's a that's a philosophical question, and I'm still I don't know because they existed before and after they exist even now and and there's some legends that says, okay, you know one angel rode the top of uh, or one giant rather rode the top of the ark, and I'm thinking okay then then God must be a complete idiot, you know and he's not I'm not saying that he is I'm saying that we've got this really messed up here. <laughs> So they didn't understand it either, but I I, I think that I have an understanding, at least something I can offer here, and that is this. Of course they survived, because we're looking for bodies, right? We think that, okay, just like we kill Goliath, okay, Goliath's dead, but what is in Goliath? Where is he now? Exactly right. So that's how they survived this whole time.
0: But I just, I know it's very, it, It's just it, it baffles me. You know, okay. So they're doing this. They've been doing this for a very long time. They're preparing for some type of war. So yeah. if they're preparing for a war, then that means they have an enemy,
1: correct? And and that means that it, that at least some of these entities, if not all of them, at least the bodies can die. And. Let me say this. That's why I believe that in these UFO abduction accounts, you have like the greys who, at least in my understanding, they're not the smartest entities out there. It's almost as if they're drones or droids that are biological um, skin suits that are possessed in a sense. And so there's, there's a second consciousness there that seems to be telling them what to do. And... That, that's why I'm, I'm so focused on not just, okay, what's the phenomenon and what are the manifestations, but what are they after? Because if you compare the victimology to the victimology of an incubus and succubus, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Succubus is, is looking to put a baby in the womb or take um, eggs out. An incubus is there to take semen out. That's just, that's what they've done. And so I think that when ufologists come out here, and I've had them in discussions with myself, and they they kind of frown on demonologists. And I'm thinking, you know what? The demonologists were, if they weren't the first experiencers, they were the first researchers of this phenomenon. So I think that we have to blend both fields and at least have a mutual respect. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) How, How about, I'm not sure you've heard, like, these conspiracies about people that are a high level of government being mm-hmm. um, like groups of Satanists that are into pedophilia and devil mm-hmm. worship and right. stuff like that. Are these people possessed by these demons or are they just, you know, working for them and in return they're getting some type of
1: power. I think it's the latter. And uh, some of these entities, they'll appear to us as guides. They'll they'll appear to us as angels, even. Matter of fact, Dr. Carla Turner had another case. This is just incredible to me, where uh, the lady actually called on Jesus and said, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. And guess who showed up? An apparition of Jesus. So. I think that they've appeared to us in many different ways, and I think that just like some of the witches in, in the 16th century, that they'll work with people, think, make them think that, that they're going to give these people something in return, and truthfully, when these entities are finished milking them, it's, uh, you know it's the most horrific thing these people could ever imagine.
0: Do you think like the Illuminati could be
1: actually like a, a a demonic cult? I think it. Yes, I think so. I think that that they get certain powers. I think they get certain freedoms and liberties, uh, you know. And in return, they they do certain rituals for these entities, just like serial killers. They're ritualistic, but they're well, doing or just
0: provide thing. them with with bodies. Exactly, I mean, that that would explain, you know the the whole thing with abducting children
1: correct and that like yeah you're exactly right because that goes all the way back to the teraphim with laban see these entities have a certain victimology as well and in in many ways we if not children specifically babies are currency to them and Once we understand more about that, then we can actually lift the discipline of demonology out of just descriptions and actually start to understand what it is we're at war with. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a whole different level. And uh, it's just, it's terrifying in a sense but I think more than anything, it's fascinating because we're starting to to see that the darkness has been staring us in the face the entire time. And I'm praying and hoping that this year specifically, that once my book comes out, that people even in my field will have a greater understanding and be able to weaponize what we know.
0: Uh, Um, Like what is what is your mission other than enlightening people about these? Are, do you plan on combating these entities?
1: These entities, at least the I call them the the hooded ones. I call them the molters. They molt people. They molt people's skin. They mm-hmm. bounce around. Um, I don't know that I could fight them. I don't. I. I. I I don't think I could, honestly. Here's why. Because the way they act, the way they operate, they have a veil of invisibility, a cloak of invisibility, which means that by the time you think you see, them, you don't. It's not just I'm invisible to you. No, there's a cloak and then there's an invisibility. So these entities can kill people. That's why they're called soul hunters. These entities, um, their IQs are, are nearly transcendent. They're different. They're not just disincarnate. They, they have to have followed us, humanity, in terms of our biology, the evolution of consciousness, our belief systems. They know us in and out. And I think that what the Bible calls fallen angels See, that word angel in the Hebrew, is it's called the molek or molek, molekim. That's the same word. In the Akkadian language, it's the same word for deceased kings. So, again, these are, um, they're disincarnate. But I think that these entities answer your question. I'm not trying to beat around the bush, but there's a reason why um, people in the Bible didn't command or didn't curse the devil or didn't curse fallen angels. You know, they just said, the Lord rebuke you. And I think it's because that truthfully we have our amulets, we have our prayers, we have everything we think we do. uh, But the only way that these entities would be conquered is if God gave us permission and God helped us with it.
0: So, so we can only defeat, defeat them. If, if God allows us to, there's like nobody, that can Correct. do it as That's of now, I'm
1: at now. Mm-hmm. because they're just too, they're too powerful. But, okay. So, you, so then you ever, what's
0: God doing? What's he waiting for?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think that these entities are living in a different, I want to say this dimension, if you will. It's just like when something materializes, then dematerializes. It's like someone stepping in and out of a room. So, there is a dimension where warfare is going on i know that because i've seen it i felt it um, there have been manifestations in both ontology and angelic manifestations where an angel will show up and it's as if he like walked through a window in the room that's not there okay And you can see things flying. And this is not my experience. This is a prophet that I know. He experienced this. He was deathly ill, and he was praying. He was actually a missionary. And an angel who is at war, who I believe are at war with these entities, uh, opened up a door in the room that didn't exist and just stepped through it. And he said he saw entities, and not entities, but things flying. And it was like a whole different world outside of that door. So here's what I believe to answer your question. I believe that what we're witnessing, especially in hauntings, is a battlefield in a sense. And we're catching bits and pieces of it and trying to war with what we can.
0: Interesting. Um... What brings this What I'm thinking is could all this have something to do with the second coming of Christ? Mm-hmm. Yes. And sir. he would be the one that would have to defeat them.
1: According to my research, he is. Here's why. In the old testament and even mainly just in the, in the ancient Near East in general, they have what's called the blood redeemer. And in the Christian tradition, they would call it the kinsman redeemer, or just, you know, they would, sometimes they would even call it the blood redeemer, but they would not understand the extent of what it means. So Yahweh in Ezekiel 13 says that he will avenge those deaths. He will come... And he will, and the Bible says that he will rip the veil off of these entities' faces. Literally. It's not an exorcist pulling a spirit out. It's it's Yahweh pulling the flesh off of these naked souls to where all they are is an apparition. You want to talk about violence?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's, (laughs) he's pretty, he's destructive. But Yahweh comes and he redeems the world. He, he redeems it to himself. He dies on a cross and purchases us. That's what Calvary was all about. And I'm not trying to get into theology, but there is a language that he's speaking through that I think we, it would you know, benefit us to understand. But the blood redeemer is what he was describing in Ezekiel 13. I'm going to come and I will avenge all of the deaths and lives that you've taken. Well, the blood redeemer, that's what he does. See, the blood redeemer is is someone who is specifically, he's a warrior. These are his qualifications and characteristics. He has to be a warrior. He has to have had a family member or family members who were murdered outside of their time, who died outside of their time. And he has to be willing to avenge them. What he does is he goes into the city in which his family member was killed. He takes the murderer back to the murderer scene, and he kills the person who killed his family member. Okay? Okay. Now, here's what happened. We were not related to Yahweh, so he could not have fulfilled that for us or for those who have died at the hands of these entities so he had the desire to he had the willingness to and the ability but we were not related to him so what the bible says is that he died for us and then took us and placed him inside his family that's why he called us the sons of god okay now what he's done is he's taken their whole rule system, their whole belief system, turned it on its head and said, now they do belong to me. Now I can fulfill the role of a blood redeemer, which is what? One day I will return, and I will do to them what they've done to people you know, that I've redeemed. And what is that? I'm going to kill. So is that
0: redeemer. what like, the book of Revelations is all
2: about?
1: Exactly right. Matter of fact, that's why in the book of Revelation, it says that these entities came out of the earth. The Bible calls them locusts. It's a, that's also, you know, okay, it's also a direct reference to the, the afterlife in the underworld. It's called Sheol. When the Bible says that hell hath enlarged itself, that's a mistranslation. It's the grave. The grave hath enlarged itself. So, that's what's going to happen. And I think that's what this is pointing to according to my, my latest research. So I'm not saying that I'm just going to say this, that's where it's pointing to. (laughs) I want to be conservative, you know?
0: So are we going to have to fight like an army of dead?
1: Yes, absolutely. 100%. Matter of fact, check this out. When the, uh, the 12 spies went into Canaan in the old Testament, this is an interesting aspect of this that I've never heard anybody mention. They said that the land devours its inhabitants. Remember what I told you? The grave that hath enlarged itself, Sheol. Yeah. Where are these entities coming from? In They're coming from the earth. These entities come out of the ground. Hmm at least Um, according to the research could something
0: like the ark of the covenant be used as a weapon against them
1: i think that if if and when this happens i think that you'll see all kinds of stuff um and i think that it will very well be a an intergalactic war and i don't know if we'll be a part of it i don't because i know how powerful these entities are you know what I mean? They can, they can, if they can possess twelve, they can possess a hundred, and you can kill a hundred, and you can still have one entity, and you don't know where it is, right? Right. So, yeah. So that that's where I'm at with this.
2: Um,
0: <laughs> are these entities also responsible for maybe some of the other supernatural phenomena that we experience? Um, I know this is sort of like an out there type of question, but like bigfoot for example you know it's like something that we can't explain
1: i don't know i don't know i know that it's a tough one because i don't just look at the manifestations and appearances i look at what they're after you know what i mean is there any kind of communication with a mortal and if there is what's the language or language preference what are they after because at least in possession cases you kind of get an idea of what these entities want. And so if they are manifesting, if they are present among us, at least in our faces, they're there for a reason. So that's why I'm not sure about the, the Bigfoot phenomenon because truthfully, it's never been like they, they were after anything from us. You know what I mean? Right. So I don't know about well, what that. What makes me think, though, is that often their, their communication is described as
0: chatter. Is it really? Yes. Like mm-hmm. if you um, listen to like certain Bigfoot recordings, I had a guest on my show mm-hmm. who, um, you know, he was famous for Bigfoot recordings and mm-hmm. he describes it as a type of chat. It's exactly what you're describing wow. as their language. Okay.
1: That's fascinating. I have to look into that because that would fit right into exactly, at least some of it exactly to what I'm saying. You know, inner giants, yeah. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting aspect to it as well, because it's not just that, that they're communicating, they're communicating in a language that's not ours. And this, this buzzing sound, this, this, this chatter, this buzzing, this vibrational sequence to it. Um, there, there are cases even in uh, the Levant where we think that giants built megalithic structures that, and one of my heroes in my field is uh, Dr. Michael Lynch, and this is Dr. Lynch's work, so I'm not going to credit myself for it, obviously, but Lynch told me, he said, and I say that respectfully, he's a mentor of mine, of mine, so I say it, Dr. Lynch told me, he said that, you know, he said that these structures were preserved and protected against, uh, what's it called, earthquakes. And he said, but that area of the world is not known to have any earthquakes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think that it's either the fact that these are huge entities or that the vibration in which they exist in or speak with, um, it has the ability to absolutely move things and to terrorize us. I mean, these entities, when the, when the Bible says that the earth devours or the land devours its inhabitants. Literally, what these what these Canaanites were witnessing, or I'm sorry, these spies were witnessing, is that they were witnessing these entities coming out of the ground and cannibalizing other people. Which is again another serial killer pathology. I mean, it's it's all there.
0: Yeah. Um. I I, I just wonder how you know, well, why this was allowed to happen. This, I don't know yet. That, 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 that's such a
1: nagging question for me. Isn't it? It's, you know, and it, you're right. I don't know either. I think that maybe I'm hoping someday I'll understand. Um, I know that I, I talked to one of my heroes, Stephen Stephen Mira, which, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of his work, but the one discussion I had with him um He told me, he said, you know, he said, as far as we can tell, he said that somebody told him, I think it was a priest or someone and said that, you know, that, that we were told that we had won the battle already. And he said that there are at least some people that believe that the battle hasn't even been fought yet. Interesting.
0: How about, um, like people that are like psychics and communicate with spirits? Are they actually communicating with demons
1: I think some of them are and some of them aren't. I have a, uh, not really a case, but I had a gentleman that watched one of my interviews on YouTube and he reached out to me, his father was a renowned remote viewer. And he's a very unique story. He said that his dad had guides that would, um, communicate with him, give him insights, information that he would have never known otherwise. And he said that um, his dad would go to sleep. He would just lay down on a couch, leave his body and enter into a room and he would meet entities. And he, he, this is an interesting, interesting concept here. I've never heard of it until till he spoke with me. But he said his father had a protection word, like a password. And he would ask these entities, he would say, what's the word? And if these were the right entities they would give him the password and he would know that he is in the right place the right time with the right guides. He said, but there was one night where his father came into the living room inconsolable and he had a heart attack. When they got him in the hospital, at least from what I remember and they said when they got him in the hospital they got him you know got him some, some happy pills and relaxed enough, he finally told them what happened he said, I went out of my body. He said, I went into the room that I always go to. I saw the creatures that I always see, the guides. He said, but they didn't know the word. And when they realized that I realized they didn't know the word, they, and this is going to sound familiar, changed their apparition. He said to something that was unearthly. And he said, next thing I know, I'm in my body again. and, And watch this. Not only, what, not only did he have a heart attack, not only did he get back in his body terrified, but these entities had carved what looks to be Egyptian hieroglyphs on his chest. <laughs> Do you think the Egyptians
0: were practicing necromancy?
1: I, oh, absolutely. Of course they were. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. And they were practicing metallurgy. That's why they had their staffs were in the, the shape and form of uh, cobras. And yeah, their staffs, according to their legend and, and a lot of some magical texts I've read, their, their staffs would, would materialize in the form of metal and then it would morph into something that was actually living. So they, they were doing all of the above. That kind of
0: reminds me of the story of... Was it Moses who threw down his staff and it turned into a snake?
1: Exactly right. Yes, sir. See, Yahweh is playing this game at a different level, man. He really is. Because he can say one word one time and say it in three or four different languages. That's what he did with Moses. Moses went and saw Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked him, you know, who sent you? And Moses said, I am that I am. In the Hebrew, that is, "I am the limitless existing one." The second definition is, "I am who I am, and I will be who I will be." Is but that in the, um, mm-hmm.
0: what what says? What is you know on top of the cross? Um, uh, usually, those letter guess like Yod Hey Vav Hey. Oh,
1: you're right. Yeah, Yod Hey Yes, sir. Tetragrammaton. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yep. And uh, so. That was in Hebrew, but in the Akkadian language, which Pharaoh knew, it wasn't just I am that I am. It wasn't just that I am and I will be. It was that I am the seed of the seed. In other words, there's going to be a day when I am incarnate. (laughs) And the limitless existing one will touch foot on earth. And, and that's the whole, it's a whole nother story. But so Yahweh, yeah, Yahweh is playing this game um, on his terms, at least it sounds like. So I'm, I'm anxious to get deeper in the research. And once I get my book out, then I'll be allowed to look deeper into this instead of just trying to, you know, do my best work in writing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When does your book come out?
1: Well, I'm looking at the end of September Beginning awesome. of October. And uh the book's title is The Skin That Crawls.
0: And um will it be available everywhere?
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amazon, everywhere you can find it. Yep. Great. So I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the publisher? Uh I'm thinking I'm gonna go, go through Amazon. So you're gonna self-publish? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm thinking about I'm thinking I'm gonna do that. Um, you know, I'm not known enough to have a book deal or anything close to that. But, you know, I, I certainly have something to say and I'm willing to actually, say Actually,
0: I know somebody who might be interested. Okay. If you wanted me to
1: definitely connect
0: you with not a publisher. Care.
1: I would love that. Absolutely.
0: All you would have to do is send him the
1: manuscript and he would take care of everything else. Definitely. Um, you know, you, you, you have all my uh, social media, right?
2: Um,
1: if not, I'll give it to you. I,
0: yeah, actually, I don't. <laughs> Okay, but but yeah, you have an email address. You can just email it to me, and I can okay. forward your information over to him, and he'll reach out to you.
1: That's fine. That'll work. And you know, so if anything, I want my goal here, man, is I want to get this book into a movie form mm-hmm. because I think that people need to understand what this this game is all about. I mean, it's far larger than just slithering tongues and you know hooves it's it's deeper than that and I think that once we grasp that understanding that the discipline of demonology and ufology will finally sit down at a table and give each other a gentleman's nod and say you know what maybe there's something to this
0: possibly
1: yeah yes. we'll see. <laughs> I, I,
0: I also know a couple movie producers too
1: <laughs> oh my lord well hey you know let's let's do it I mean if anything I think that'll add to the field and that's really why I'm here great um,
0: so do you have any advice
1: for my listeners on
0: how they can protect themselves from demonic entities?
1: Well, I think that, that prevention is, more, is far more successful than intervention. So prevention is usually identifying attachments. And so attachments is the stage of possession where it lays upon you. It, it, it will groom you and, and watch this, this is interesting too, that, that before you before you are what is it before you are molded and conformed to it in possession, it will conform to you in attachment. And so the way attachment works is it will manipulate any negative emotions you have any kind of past trauma, any kind of depression or suicidal ideation, if you feel that even though you're doing your best and that there is a heightened dimension of that present around you, then I would, I would go to someone in, in my field or even a minister or a priest and say, hey, listen, I believe that there may be an attachment on me. And that's the best way to do it because it's far easier to get rid of an, an attachment than it is an actual possession case.
0: How, how would a minister be able to take care of that attachment? Did he do a secret ritual, or it, know,
1: it depends on what I and it depends on what you believe as well. So um, normally, I deal with people who are of the Christian tradition or the Catholic. Uh, heritage. So for them, I would say, you know, get a, get a Bible, get Holy water, um, get a cross. I, I, I know that these entities do not like iron. And so if it's an iron necklace or a horseshoe or whatever, you know, place it. I mean, that, that that's an interesting aspect to it as well, but place it in your home. Uh, there, there's many things that you can do to to ward it off. In addition to that, you have to fill in any void within you. So if you have trauma that is unhealed, you have, to, you have to really seek to get that taken care of because that's how these entities manifest. It's not just they take wives or they manifest as husbands or, or anything like that. It's that, that what are they gonna say to you when they do show up, right? How are they going to groom you? They're gonna love bomb you. They're going to, you know, they're going to prime you into a position where you, you no longer have consent anymore and it's got you nearly to possession.
0: So there's definitely a psychological aspect that people should be aware of.
1: Correct. Correct. And
0: um, how, how can a person tell if it's, uh, pos- you know, an attachment or if it's just plain old depression or being in a funk?
1: It's very difficult to, and that's why when people seek out deliverance ministry and I, have done this before and it's not an insult, but I think sometimes people really do need to go seek a therapist or someone to help them and say, you know what, you know, according to the, the data sample, you do not have a personality disorder or anything like that. You know what I mean? Cause you can't rule mm-hmm. that out. Certainly not. Uh, but these entities will feed off of you. And so I would look, in addition to everything I've mentioned p- before, I would look to a depression that makes you feel like you're dying or a fear that makes you feel like you're going to die. Uh, something that puts you in bed, in, especially if you've never been a uh, you know in chronic depression or manic depression before. If something puts you in bed and you have never experienced that. Those are key signs especially suicidal ideations but the moment someone is possessed by the time they are possessed it has them
0: so do you think people with like mental illnesses like depression or schizophrenia you think they're more susceptible to possession than a normal person
1: I think that there are many of them that are possessed Um, have you ever heard of uh, dr. Jerry Marzinski no Okay. He is, he's awesome. He's one of my, one of my favorites, but anyways, he's a, uh, I believe he's a clinical psychologist uh-huh. and he works with people of this nature and, and it's just like possession. You know, some of these people say, oh, you know what, I, I have, I have uh schizophrenia and then it's like, okay, we'll sit down with them or he'll sit down with them rather. And next thing you know, that person will manifest a belief system of a preternatural knowledge or something that, that transcends the microcosm of what, psychology allows for that disease it's just like possession so when there's the second entity present you'll have that always and uh but yeah i would look up jerry marzinski's work especially if you haven't heard it you can have him on the show he's oh my god you'll be enchanted with him i promise
0: yeah you'll have to send me his information i'll have him on
1: definitely definitely
0: Hmm. so it's been interesting um Thanks for being on my show.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. And I know my take is a little bit different.
0: Wait, I have one more question. Yes, sir. I, and I completely forgot. I have to ask. How about conjuring, like like people that conjure spirits, magicians, sorcerers, wizards?
1: They exist.
0: Well, I know they exist, yeah. but but the what? entities that they're working with, most of the time, like... Like most of the people that I talk to who are involved with the occult feel mm. like that the entities that they're working with are benign. Oh, they'll always feel like they're benign.
1: Always, always until they want something from them. So I always make this reference to John D. and Edward Kelly. John D. and Edward Kelly thought they had a beautiful handmaiden giving them the Enochic language, Right. right? Mm-hmm. Staring into the mirror and oh my gosh, you know, we have this, this transcendent being. Uh, yeah, you know, it's just like possession. It was transcendent until it wanted them to do something. And guess what it wanted? I want you two to switch wives. If you do that, I'll give you everything you're asking for. It gets their better judgment, even according to them. They did that. All right. It did the act, came back. And as soon as, you know what they saw? You know what met them in the mirror? An old hack who laughed at them and mocked them for how stupid they were. And I don't think they were stupid, to be honest. No, I think that they were obviously, especially John D. He was a luminary of his generation. Incredible, right? Yes. But that goes to show you that these entities, just like possession, they'll take you along, string you along until they want to be at one place at one time, and then they'll possess you or unless they want you to do something. And then you'll realize, oh my God, that's what they've been wanting me to do the entire time. They've just been grooming me to make the decision for them. <laughs>
0: well, definitely uh, an interesting answer.
1: And not uh, to say that these, these guys aren't powerful. Of course they're powerful. Of course they're powerful. I mean, Al- Alistair Crowley, uh, I mean, action at a distance kneeling down and tying his own shoe, shoe and looking up and some guy does the same thing. You know, they're, are very powerful entities, but even Crowley did not finish the Almond trial. He couldn't, he didn't, you know, and when these entities see when you get to that level of distinction to them, there, there is a measure of respect. That's why, um, oh Lord, Jack Parsons got his butt kicked. You know, he thought, okay, I'm going to do this same ritual. No, they came through, beat the and snot out of them because they didn't respect him, and Crowley warned him. So, yeah, so that's my theory on
2: that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: I guess no matter what, it's a risk.
1: It is a risk. And if they're, if they're actually deceased loved ones, they're going to come to you different ways and they're going to actually say something that matters, means something to you, and they're not going to stick around.
0: Yeah. That's where most of my paranormal experiences has been with, is with deceased family members. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh yeah. That's an, that's a whole nother show.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for being on.
1: Yes, sir. Thank you for having me on. It's been a, it's been a, pleasure.
0: and, um, and also, um, I mean, if you want to come back when your book comes out, I'll definitely be more than happy to have you back on.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And, um, and also just send me a link to your book so I can, uh, um, put, you know, add it to the notes. So my li- listeners will be able to click on the link and get your book. Okay. Um, even to this episode, I can go back and add links and stuff like that.
1: Okay, definitely. In, in addition to that, I'm also on Instagram and Facebook as Nathaniel J. Gillis. So you guys can hit me up on my social media. My website is njgillis.com.
0: Yes, yeah, nice website, too. I checked it out. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show, and I'm going to call that a wrap.
1: All right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast live up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. Which I be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. And LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. And Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everythingimaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening and see you next week. And you know, oh, yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee. The only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.